Well, certainly, the, the message of the second coming of Christ, I would say, dominates the Bible. Prophecy, if you just took it in that general word, one writer said, occupies approximately one-fifth of Scripture. So we're not going to avoid uh, 20%, okay? Um, that's prophecy. The second coming prophecies occupy one-third of the one-fifth. There are 660 general prophecies, 333 of those general prophecies are regarding the person of Christ, okay? Of those 333 that are about Christ, 109 were fulfilled at his first coming, and 224 are yet to be fulfilled at his second coming. So by all means, as the Lord's servant, the servant to you, and the privilege to be one of the elders, we're not going to ignore this section. Let me put it another way. There are 7,959 verses in the New Testament. 330 of them are about the second coming of Christ. That would be about one out of every 25. Next to the subject of faith, no subject is more discussed than the second coming of Christ. Every time the first coming is mentioned, his first coming, his second coming is mentioned eight different times. Okay, the Lord himself personally referred to his return 21 times and certainly I would exhort us over 50 times we are told to be ready for it. I mean, that is a general exhortation, be ready for it. Now, I mention that to you because scoffers according to 2 Peter 3, say, where is the promise of his coming? Scoffers, at least in 2 Peter 3, deny it. But I would affirm to you that history itself peaks at the return of Christ. So as we look into Daniel chapter 7, okay, he's seen a vision, a dream, 2,500 years ago, and he presents, it's a marvelous chapter, a sweep of human history all the way to the end of the world. The vision moves from Daniel's prophecy all the way, all the way to the consummation of history, when all the nations will be judged and God will set up his kingdom through the Son of Man. Look at the text, and maybe I shall read to you. Let me just read 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. 
And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, that would be the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now before us is the coronation of the Son of Man, okay? It's the coronation of the Son of Man by the Ancient of Days as we studied last week. I went in a little bit to when Prince, uh, is it Philip, was coronated this last year and all the history of it, but I thought, ah, uh, just pales in utter significance to any kind of coronation. This is the coronation of all coronations, the Son of Man by the Ancient of Days, who will coronate the Son of Man with the kingdom. Now, as I proceed with you, you're catching a phrase there, the Son of Man. Who is that Son of Man? I would say that we come to one of the most significant um, chapters, even verses in the whole Bible regarding the Son of Man. Now remember the map that we've been looking at is that Daniel is giving us three powerful assurances of God's sovereignty over the nations and the coming kingdom of Christ. And the point of this is to inspire hope rather than fear. So my, my goal this morning is Daniel's. We looked at the first powerful assurance of God's sovereignty. We won't touch on that. But remember, it's the revealing of God's prophetic will over all kingdoms of the world, even to the end of the age. And we looked at 7, 1 through 8 and the four beast empire corresponding to Daniel chapter 2. The second powerful assurance of God's sovereignty is where we are now. It is the revealing of God as judge over the final history of the world and the coronation of the Son of Man. Now, there's two subpoints to this second assurance. Number one, God is the judge. Look back there in verse 8. Remember when the horns came up and behold, um, it came up among them another horn. So he's moving, we believe, past the Roman Empire to something else that he sees. And this occupies this vision. It's this fourth and then the coming horn. It was a little one before which the three first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and the mouth speaking great things. But Daniel says, as I looked in this vision, thrones were being placed or literally laid down. And the ancient of days took his seat and the everlasting one. And his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. God is pictured there in this second assurance. 
He is the ancient of days. And the picture here, obviously, is one of judgment. One of judgment over that, I, I could say, the 11th horn, the little horn, who begins um, small but then becomes great, Daniel chapter 7, 20. But look at the text, and here's where we'll pick up. As I looked, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, as I looked, the beast was killed. There's another name. What is that little horn? It is the beast. It is the Antichrist in the New Testament. It says he was killed and his body destroyed, and it was given over to be burned with fire. And so we left off that that little horn with the big mouth, powerful uh, words, deceptive, if you will, will suddenly experience the fire of God's judgment and he will be silenced forever. This corresponds, remember, to the New Testament in Revelation 1920, okay, not the year 1920, but 19, the 19th chapter, the 20. The beast was captured along with the false prophet who in the presence had done the signs by which he deceived uh, those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And here's what I was drawing you to. These two, that would be the beast and the false prophets, were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So even though we see the presence of this little horn, they will both be cast at the end, the prophet, the beast, here, they will be killed, 7-11, and thrown into that fire, into the lake of fire. Paul spoke of this, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, there is another name for the Antichrist. And by the way, 1 John 4 said the Antichrist is already in this world. Who is the Antichrist? But the one who denies the Lord Jesus Christ. So there was Antichrist, if you will, that were present when John wrote 1 John. But there is in the scripture a greater one that is coming. And in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, and I'm drawing here uh, scripture with scripture, here, that little horn, the Antichrist, the beast, is called the lawless one. And when he is revealed in the middle of the tribulation, whom the Lord Jesus, here's what I was drawing to you, drawing you to, will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing, here's the phrase, by the appearance of his coming. It is at his coming, at his second coming, that he is going to kill this little horn. Now there are critics, I don't need to go too far, who argue that this death in the scripture here, of 711 was Antiochus Epiphanes. He was killed or he died in battle in 164 BC. He was a Seleucid king. 
Some even see the things that I'm going to share with you as the destruction of the temple in 70 AD when the whole temple, you remember, was destroyed. However, I would say to you, the kingdom of God did not follow Antiochus Epiphanes' death, at least in the order we're reading here. Who followed his death was Rome. So at the end of his death, the kingdom wasn't set up. There would be room here that the great tribulation is followed by our Lord killing the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth at the second coming and establishing a literal physical kingdom. Now let me dive in. You say, well, what happens after that? Put your eyes on verse 12. As for the rest of the beast, in other words, the Antichrist is killed, their dominion, God's sovereign, was taken away, taken away by God. He raised them up, then he takes them away Interesting phrase, but their lives were prolonged, it says, for a season and a time. What, it, what is this? Well, a couple options. I don't want to be over dogmatic here. It could be the three previous kingdoms that were listed in Daniel 7, 1 through 6. In other words, it could be that those three previous kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persian, and the Greeks, once they were conquered by Rome, were absorbed, if you will, successively. They lost their dominance when they were conquered in history. Could be that, or it could be a reference to the ten horns at the end of the world. In other words, what you have here is after Christ's second coming, the ten horns and will be destroyed eventually, and Christ's kingdom will replace it. Remember in chapter 2, all those metals, a stone came out of nowhere and destroyed all those previous kingdoms. But I draw you to 13. Look at it again. It says there, that the, I saw, he's just, he's looking. And in the night visions, it's a dream on his bed at night in chapter 7 early on. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Who is Daniel referring to in verse 13? Who is the Son of Man? Who is he? Now, uh, you could look here. It's not, a, it's not an obscure term. The Son of Man has two thoughts to it in the Scriptures. It is a synonym first for just man, in other words, the Son of Man is a description of man. It is a description of a human being. In fact, 107 times in the scripture, it refers to a man. It refers to a human being. But there's a second category, and Daniel uses this 
category. He uses this title, and I'm anxious to show you this, for a coming divine ruler who will be given in 13 and 14 honor and a kingdom uh, by God. Now, what's interesting here with the Son of Man, it's so different from the beast in just numerous ways. I point out a couple. The beast come, you remember, kind of hideously. Rome was hideous, but they come out of a turbulent sea driven and tossed by the four four winds. But the Son of Man, look again in verse 13. He comes with the clouds of heaven. In other words, he's not arising out of the sea, no. He's coming, if you will, with the clouds in the heavenly sphere. sphere. So you got four beasts and then you have one like a man. So we look here at this subpoint: God is judged, but secondly... The Son of Man, I'll state it, you probably assumed it, is Christ, okay? It is Christ. So if you look at it again, look at 13. In the night, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, Christ. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. Now, what might be intriguing to you is the Son of Man is the title most often used in the New Testament by the Lord himself. Did you know that? He has many names. Think of his names over the years, you noble Bereans. But here is the name that he used the most about himself. It's Very interesting. It is, I'll put it this way, a direct reference used by our Lord in the New Testament that he is the very one to whom Daniel spoke. That's what we're dealing with here. We're in a transcendent uh, prophecy here. And as Daniel sees in this vision, he sees one like Yahweh coming in the clouds, if you will, And he is, by the Ancient of Days, given this kingdom. So the Son of Man certainly is a reference to humanity, yes, because the Son of Man accomplished what Adam never did in the garden. He becomes the perfect man. He is the Son of Man in his humanity, but it is also, as I mentioned, a description of his deity as judge of the world because he has been designated by the Ancient of Days to receive a kingdom. Psalm 10 and so forth, Psalm 2. He is the Messiah. And certainly in this context, the Son of Man conquers in verses 9 through 12, all evil nations. He is given in verse 14, all authority to rule over God's kingdom. And then I would also say he exercises that uh, authority universally with the saints of the Most High in 15 through 28. Our Lord, beloved, I'm just, right, we're just teaching here. This is not like, weird end times prophecy that go to massive extremes. We're not doing that. 
I'm just saying that our Lord unequivocally states in the New Testament that I am the Son of Man in Daniel. Jesus, as I mentioned, used that title over 80 times. This is our Lord's own self-designation. He is deliberately fulfilling in his life, ministry, ascension, death, coronation, all Old Testament prophecy that spoke of him. In fact, let me give you an idea, okay? And I'm going to put some of these on the screen. You can write them down for the future. One of my favorite passages is in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 6. Jesus said, in order that you may know that I am the what? The Son of Man and that the Son of Man has authority. There is that phrase. It's not just a man. He has authority to forgive sins So he said to the paralytic, pick up your bed and go home. That was the secondary miracle. The first one was the son of man has been given the authority to forgive sins. I think you can see that the son of man also is a designation for the second person of the Trinity. Remember the Jewish people said that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive what? Sins. No, the Son of Man has the authority. Remember, he comes down out of the roof and he said, My son, seeing their faith, the four guys that lowered him, seeing their faith, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus used this as a title and just highlighting a few, uh, specifically of his earthly ministry. In Matthew 12, 8, where the son, remember the miracle there, you can look at it later, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. It is his authority. But the predominant use, I could go on there, of the son of man refers to his second coming as a judge of the nations. This is all over the scripture. Matthew 16, 27. And I'm reading them a little slow. I don't know if you can tell. I feel like my voice is a little slow. But I don't want you to miss this. And I'm just quoting scripture with scripture, okay? Matthew 16, 27. The son of man is going to what? Come, second coming, with his what? angels. This is not his first coming. His first coming was attended by angels, but he's going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father. And there's this aspect of judgment. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Now, you're you're saying, okay, pastor, are we in the kingdom? Of course we're in the kingdom. Of course we're in the kingdom. Jesus came in Matthew 4 and he, said, he preached, repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. There's an aspect where the kingdom has already begun. The kingdom does it not rules in your heart and in my heart. The kingdom of God in Romans 14, 17 is righteousness, joy and peace. So there's an aspect of his kingdom that is now, but there's an aspect of his physical kingdom that will happen at his 
second coming. It's in our hearts, yet in one day it will be at that second coming where he will come in power and glory in the clouds of heaven to reign in an earthly kingdom. Think it this way of the Son of Man in Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said, truly I say to you, in the new world, (laughs) do you see that? It's in the new world. In other words, something beyond Hamas. Something beyond Iran. Something beyond, if you will, the Antichrist. In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. In other words, he's coming not just to rule in your heart, but to rule physically. There's a coming kingdom. Matthew says in 24, 27 in the Olivet Discourse, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the what? Son of man. Now, listen, I I don't need to confuse you. Some people would think that all of Matthew 24 All of Mark 13 was fulfilled at 70 AD at the destruction of the temple. But look here, lightning comes from the east. It shines as far as the west. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look there again on the screen in Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man here it is, comes in his glory. Stop there just for a second. You know and I know Christmas is not too far away. He came in humility. The foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has what? Nowhere to lay his head. He came in utter humility. He came born in a stable He came maybe without fanfare, except the angels were above. But here, when he comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and before him, it says there, will be gathered, actually right after that, will be gathered all the nations. Why? He's coming to judge the nations. You say, did he judge them at the first coming? Well... I think he was crucified on the cross for us to accomplish your redemption. But he didn't come in glory and power. He came to accomplish, if you will, that high priestly work. But would you just cast your eyes again at 713? He he talks about one like the Son of Man, but look back just a little bit. He comes, behold, with the clouds, it says there, of heaven, okay? With or in the clouds clouds of heaven, with or in. In the Old Testament, you will find frequently that when the clouds appear, they are a symbol of God's deity, a symbol of his glory, a symbol of his judgment, 
a symbol of his vindication. In Psalm 104.3, and there's many more, Isaiah 19.1, God is manifested in the clouds. Now, if, if I had time, I already preached on it in Ephesians 3.20 and 21. To him be the glory in the church, his glory in the church. What is that? We read it every week. To him be the glory, to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. I just remind you, you can look back at the website and see that. What do you mean to him be the glory? What's his glory? Well, his glory in the Old Testament was his Shekinah glory. What, what is his glory? It was a physical manifestation, if you will, of the very presence of God. Do you remember when Moses said, Lord, if you don't go with me, I'm not going. And so he put him out there to lead the, the nation of Israel, but he put a, a glory cloud so that they could follow him as they left Egypt. It was a cloud by day and a fire by what night? What is that? It's a symbol of his presence with them, okay? It's, it, it, it referred to Yahweh, to God's character, who is holy and pure, but it's a promise here in the New Testament to him be the glory. That means this church has one purpose for you, to reveal the holy character of God, to reveal the person of Christ. But whenever you see that, it is a picture, at least in the Old Testament, of Yahweh. But here, do you notice this? In this vision, there are two figures. One is the Ancient of Days, Yahweh, seated on his throne. And then there's another, if you will, Yahweh, cloud riding on the clouds, okay? He's writing, if you will, and coming to the ancient of days who presents to him an eternal kingdom and the right to rule. Daniel saw two powers in heaven, the one on the throne, and then he saw, for the sake of a word, the vice regent sharing Yahweh's essence and receiving an everlasting dominion and power. I mean, isn't this... The point of verse 14, look there. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And so here, the eternal universal kingdom of God is given to one like the son of man who comes in a divine manifestation, if you will, in the clouds to receive this kingdom. Now, let me just compare scripture with scripture, okay? Does this, is this not what it says in Revelation 1, 7? Behold, John said, he is coming with the what? Clouds. And what? Every eye will see him. Even those who, what? Pierced him. What is he talking about? The second coming. And all the tribes on the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. 
I haven't seen the tribes, the, the nations of the earth wailing. We're waiting for the second coming. In fact, it says in Revelation 1, 13 and 14, in his midst of the lampstands, in that vision of John on the island of Patmos, one like the son of man, the hairs of his head were white and his eyes were a flame of fire. Just as though the ancient of days sat on his throne, he, if you will, gives this kingdom to one like the son of man. And the same picture of the ancient of days in Daniel 7 is the picture of the Son of Man in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. And then it says this in Revelation 14, 14. I think I'm begging the question is, there are many sincere believers who don't think that Revelation is for today. They say that it was all already fulfilled at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but in 1414, I'm just drawing you there. I looked, John, and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like the son of man with a golden crown on his head. What, what, a golden crown. That certainly is symbolic of a laurel wreath, if you will. He, he, he had this crown on his head head and a sharp sickle in his hand ready to reap the judgment. He has not done that yet, okay? In Acts 1, 9 and 11, remember after the resurrection, he appeared to 500 people at one time. They were looking on and he was, says there, lifted up and a cloud, you know that passage, took him out of sight. And then in 111, the angel said, two men stood by them in a white robe and it said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the what? Same way as you saw him go into heaven. Same way in a cloud. So beloved, the coming of the Son of Man is a direct reference to the deity of Jesus Christ and his second coming. And I just can't see the 70 AD, the destruction there, or even just his resurrection, or even as some historians speak of that destruction like Josephus and Tacitus as a fulfillment of what happened in 70 AD. Why do you say that? Look at the text in Matthew 24, 29. You can write these down. I'm just in reading scripture immediately. After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear... In heaven, the sign of the Son of Man. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. And then you say, what is that? It is, a, it is the coming here is a 
full manifestation, a full realization of that kingdom that certainly began in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ through his life, through his ministry, through his death, through his ascension, but we're waiting for Matthew 24. Do you remember in Mark 16, the high priest said to him, are you the Christ? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. And it ends there. And of course, they said, we need to listen to nothing more. Condemn him. They did the religious leaders to death because he likened himself to Messiah. He said that he was the son of man of Daniel 7. He said, you will see me, right? Coming in the right hand of power and glory in the clouds of heaven. Our Lord repeatedly connects himself to the promise and the prophecy of Daniel. The son of man, Jesus Christ, is the very one whom Daniel saw. And there's more, like Luke 17, 26, just as the days of Noah, here's the days that you live in, me. Just as in the days of Noah, so they will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage. What do you mean by that? They're partying. No, I don't take it that way. They're just going on in life. They're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying. I saw two people got married in Israel that were in the army. They're given in marriage until the day, it says, when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planning and building But on that day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. These things are going to take place, and it says, and you must stand before the Son of Man. Beloved, all I can say is what you have here is the coronation. The Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man authority over the entire world to set up an earthly kingdom. It makes sense because you remember in John's Gospel when we exposited through that, John 5.27 says he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. It says in 2 Peter 3 that the day of the Lord will come like a thief when the heavens pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works uh, and, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Beloved, there is coming a day, make no mistake about it, the Son of Man will reign on his kingdom. He will reign in his kingdom. And Jesus certainly accomplished this authority given to him by God to rule. But at his first coming, he did it in his suffering, in his death, and in his resurrection on our behalf. You know that. The Son of Man in his first coming rules uh, by means of his weakness. 
And by means of his suffering and by means of his death, though one day he will come again in power and glory with his angels to destroy all of his enemies and take his rightful place as the visible, literal king of creation. Listen, that's who he is. He's God, second person of the Trinity. The Ancient of Days gives to him a kingdom that he will rule over, not just in the hearts of people, but one day physically rule. But here he is, think you as you go to the Lord's table in 831 of Mark. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer these things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be what? Killed and after three days rise again. I'm just saying to you, as you partake in just a moment, the Son of Man suffered for you. Eternal God, second person of the Trinity. What Adam could not do in his humanity, Christ comes and fulfills all the law for you. And even though he is the King of glory that will reign one day here, He suffers, is rejected uh, for you, and was killed. Luke 9.44. Let, you ever seen that verse? Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man. It's hard to say without weeping. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So by his suffering, by his death, by his rejection, if you will, and then a subsequent resurrection, he certainly was given authority over all things at that time. All authority, Jesus said, after his resurrection has been given to me, go and make what? Disciples. It says in Acts 2.36 that he was made Lord and Christ by his death and resurrection. It says in Philippians that God gave him the name that is above what? Every name. I know that. You know that. The angel Gabriel, do you remember in just a few months we'll celebrate when the angel announced his birth that he, speaking of Christ, will be great he will be called, here's another name, the son, the son of the Most High and the Lord God. You say, well, that's at his first coming. Well, just hang with me. Will be given to him the throne of his ancestor, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So there it is, it's at his first coming. And I would say, no, we're still waiting for his second coming. He was given those things, but he's not ruling and reigning over the whole earth. Beloved Jesus, arrival on this earth was the beginning of the fulfillment of Daniel's vision, but Daniel's vision is still yet future. You say, how do you know this? Well, scripture, because the disciples first thought that it was utterly complete fulfillment after his resurrection. In fact, after the resurrection, you remember in Acts chapter one, 
He asked them, Lord, is this the time? They asked him, is this the time that you will restore the kingdom? And Jesus said, it's not time. It is not for you to know the times or periods that the father has set up by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In other words, you're on a mission right now. And I am on a mission. And our church is on a mission until King Jesus comes in his utter fullness. So far from being passive, far from closing up the shop of our house, we ought to be the most evangelistic people in all of the San Joaquin Valley, right? You ought to be utterly active because there's a time gap in here, okay? But Hebrews says this, this has always helped me. Putting everything in subjection under his feet, life, death, resurrection. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, is, it, is he overall? Yes. He let nothing outside of his control? Yes. But write this one down. At the present, though, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. You know that and I know that. This is not the kingdom right now. <laughs> not everything is in subjection to him. In fact, I would say nothing hardly is, except I hope our hearts spiritually. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory, yes, and honor because of his suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In other words, he came to redeem you. He came to die for you. And if you've never trusted Christ, let's just say you're a junior high. Let's say you're in high school and you're just not sure you want to give your life over to him. I would commend you, do so this day. I would plead with you. I would beg with you, make Christ king, he already is, but over your own life and heart by repenting and believing because if not, and I say this with grace, you would be the biggest fool on the earth. You are accountable to this preaching and I beg you, come to Christ. Look at the next verse in Hebrews, since therefore, this is the work of Christ, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise he became a man. He became the son of man that is both humanity and deity. He partook of the same things that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the son of man died for you. It's just hard to... Of course, this is the word of God. Why would the purest, most holy, everlasting trinity who dwelt in unapproachable light, who dwelt in perfection without the presence of sin and God Almighty from before the foundation of the world offers the second person of the trinity to come and die in your place. 
It's incredible. Do you remember when the writer of Hebrews said in chapter one, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he, yes, appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, which is, what do you mean he created the world? He just spoke it into existence. Let there be light and there was light and let the waters team and let the fish. Jesus Christ just spoke it into existence. He is Christ, the Son of Man, if you will, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Praise God, amen. He is both true man and he is true God. Let me put it this way. I was trying to fiddle with words. The son of God, eternally so, became the son of man in order that you might become sons of God and that God might restore what was lost in the garden through his beloved son. So here's two assurances of God's sovereignty over the nations and the coming kingdom of Christ that should inspire hope rather than fear. Here, the second one is the revealing of God as judge over the final history of the world and the coronation of the Son of Man. You say, well, Scott, is there more there, of course? Next week is baptism and the right hand of welcome or the welcome of the new members, but we'll pick it up in a couple weeks. Would you bow your head?